Okay, let's take our Bibles out. We're going to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll pick up where we left off in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. With my parents visiting here, a lot of the kids came home and stuff and and visited while they were here, but they wanted to also go down south, down toward the cities to see the homes that some of the kids have bought. So Thursday morning we took off and we went and drove down there. And while we were at the hotel that night, we went down to the pool area and there was uh, families and stuff down there because the, the pool area also has a water slide and a hot tub and the kids were down there going down the water slide and, and climbing into the hot tub and stuff. And we noticed with this one family that was sitting over in the area where we were that the mom was starting to do all the, the kind of pre-warning for getting everybody out of the pool. This one little guy, I'd say he's probably around seven years old or so, he was just taking his first steps down into the hot tub and his mom from behind him says, okay, now in about two minutes you're going to have to get out of there because we got to get back up to the room. And he said, what? I just got kind of a chuckle out of it because uh, this little guy was not on the same page as the wisdom of his mother. He wasn't seeing it. Why getting out in two minutes was a good idea. Her wisdom for getting up early in the morning and his wisdom for enjoying the most out of this pool and hot tub area were not sinking. Well, in the church we've experienced that. In fact, we've experienced that all the way back from the time of the apostles when Jesus was leading His apostles around and teaching them and He began to tell them about the cross. They were just like that little boy. They were, what? They were not too sure about that. But the wisdom of God, the apostles didn't necessarily first pick up on. We find that in our experience of walking with Christ, that sometimes the wisdom of God eludes us. And we're asking the same question as we're wondering what God's plan is with with us and the things that we're going through. Well, that's kind of what the Apostle Paul is dealing with with the Corinthians, is this distinction between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. See, the Corinthians, even though they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and should be walking within the wisdom of God, we're really walking a lot in the wisdom of man. Usually the wisdom of man is kind of self-seeking, self-serving. Look out for number one. You deserve it. You, you need this break. You, you've heard it so many times before, maybe even said it on occasion. It's very different than the wisdom that comes from God. The wisdom that comes from God we find centered in and modeled through the Gospel. 
which is self-sacrifice, not self-indulgence, which is, which is focusing on the needs of others rather than the needs of ourselves. That's where the wisdom of God lies, but it contrasts or it conflicts with the wisdom that is found within the world. And the, the Corinthians, at this point, they've been exercising the wisdom that's found in the world. And what has it led to? It's led to factions and division. As one person, as we looked at last week, would say, well, I'm following Apollos, and another, I'm following Peter. I'm following Paul. You could do a lot worse than to follow any one of those three guys as far as uh, using them as an example and learning from them. But you know what? Even following the best of people does not measure up to the wisdom of God. And that's what God, through the Apostle Paul, is telling these Corinthians at this time. Look, you've been relying on human wisdom and it is, it is failing you. It is letting you down. And so he's calling them to live by a greater wisdom. To bank on, to trust in the wisdom that comes from the cross. To the world, the wisdom that comes from the cross would be foolishness. To the world, the cross doesn't look wise. To the world, the cross doesn't look strong. To the world, the cross looks weak. To the world, the cross looks foolish. In fact, there's good reason for it. The cross was actually intended to be both of those things. The cross is what Rome used to put down anybody that dared defy Rome. It was designed to take this person, parade them before town, hang them up in front of everybody, and say, look, this is exactly what happens when you dare defy the Roman Empire. It was designed to show the pride of Rome and the humiliation of its enemies. But it's exactly in that that we find wisdom and strength. That's what he says in verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. And he's going to emphasize that throughout the passage. Now, sometimes he's going to refer to that as, as the cross. And sometimes he's going to refer to it as Christ. Because notice that in this verse, he refers to the cross as the wisdom and the power of God. Both of those things. Well, when you get down to verse 24, he does the same thing, but he uses the word Christ. He refers to Christ as being both the wisdom and the power of God for us. That The two are inseparable. You know, it's really a paradox. It was designed to humiliate, but we find that we are proud of it. That it is our strength. It was designed to end life, but we find that it gives life. But you know what? If, if you're not a believer, then this is all you have. If this life is all you have, then, then that cross needs to be avoided at all cost. If this life is all that you have, then it means every day you live on this earth, you're one day closer to losing everything that you have as a treasure. But if this life isn't all you have, then every day you live on this earth, you're one day closer to gaining everything that you have as a treasure. You see, that's the Christian paradox. We find life, Jesus told us, by, by losing it. We don't find that fulfillment and satisfaction by me first. If you look at the world, they don't either. Because does their life look like it's free of tumult? Do they look happy? Has their wisdom produced happiness for them? No, it hasn't. Well, we're called to live in this paradox. So as we look at this wisdom of the cross, the first thing that we're going to look at is three responses to the cross. He starts out talking about two kinds of people, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And he says to one, this is foolishness. To the other, this is wisdom and this is power. Down a little bit farther in the passage, he breaks it down a little bit more. He says in verse 22, he says, For the Jews demand signs, 
and Greeks seek wisdom, and that just culturally is exactly what they do. When you look back at the Jewish community at that time, they're always looking for a sign, a, a something that was kind of supernatural from God to point them in the right direction or, or to show them His will. Even though God gave them a lot of signs, they didn't get it. In fact, it's kind of funny. There are places in the Gospels where you can see Jesus doing all these miracles, and they're called signs, and then the Jewish leadership comes up to Jesus and says, alright, if you're really who you think you are, give us a sign. <laughs> Right in the middle of all these miracles. I mean, were you not watching? Were you not looking? You turned around for just a minute? or How did you miss it? And at that point, you know what Jesus does? He says, you know what? An adulterous generation seeks after a sign and there will not be a sign given to it. Jesus says, except for this one. He says, here's your last sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Looking forward to his own burial and resurrection. But what are the Jewish people looking for? They're looking for signs. Even though they got all those signs performed right in front of them, it says they were a stumbling block. So some people, some trip. What's the response to the Gospel? When people look at the Gospel, well, some people trip over it. They just don't get it. They stumble. Even the disciples had a a problem with it. In Matthew chapter 16, this is right after Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some think you're John the Baptist risen from the dead, or Isaiah, or Elijah, one of the other prophets. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter steps forward and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. At that time, Jesus begins to teach him about two things he'd never taught him about yet. One is the the church that he was going to build. And you need to be a part of that church that he's building, by the way. And the other one is the, the cross. How he was going to build the church? By going to the cross. Well, so the first time this comes up, this is what happens. He asked them who people thought he was. They gave him lofty answers, but not the right answer. He said, who do you say that I am? And they got it right. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, that's right. And upon you guys, I'm going to build my church. The apostles are the foundation of the church. Now Peter must be feeling, and the rest of the apostles must be feeling pretty good. We got the question right. We got the question right. Jesus is going to take us and build His church. That's what we're talking about. It's time to build. Let's build the church. Let's get this thing going. They've been, they've been continuing to ask Jesus and they're going to continue to ask Him, when are you going to set up your kingdom? They're looking forward to the kingdom. Church must be part of that kingdom. Let's build. Let's get this church going. They're going to ask Him other questions. Who gets to sit on your right hand? Who gets to sit on your left? Which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus turns around and now He starts to tell them about the cross. And Peter says, wait a minute. <laughs> I get a kick out of this. I just love to picture this in my mind. Peter, it's like he grabs Jesus by the elbow. Because <laughs> it says he takes him aside. Can you imagine leading Jesus aside? He takes him aside to straighten him out. And he says, now wait a minute. Back to the building things. Building church. building, Not cross. <laughs> Not the cross. Right? And Jesus, what does He do? He straightens out Peter. He says, hey, don't go leading me. Don't go leading me by the arm. You get behind me. Satan, that had to sting. But Jesus says, Peter, you're, you're carrying out, you're using the wisdom of man. I need to go to the cross to fulfill the wisdom of God. And so even Peter, think about that, even the Apostle Peter, the one that Jesus just a few minutes ago called a rock, is now not behaving like that solid rock. Even Peter was struggling with the wisdom of God. And you know what? We struggle with the wisdom of God. Wisdom of God means that we self-sacrifice, that we're not self-serving. That we follow 
that example of Christ, that we live out that paradox. Peter caught hold of it. Because later in, in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, it says he himself bore our sins and his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. He says the, the Jews seek after a sign. He said, but the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. If you look back at the Greeks, what did we, re, what did we get from the Greek culture? A lot of philosophy. It's from that that we get, you know, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and philosophy is their, that's their bailiwick. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what, from the Jews, they seek after sign. The Greeks, they pursue wisdom. You know what, neither of them came to the right conclusion on the cross. Neither of them were tuned in to the wisdom of God. And so, whereas the, the, the Jewish people tripped over the gospel, the Greek people teased because he went on to say that they mocked it, that they, they scoffed it, they ridiculed this idea of the cross. You know, in Isaiah chapter 55 and verses 8 and 9, the prophet says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Greeks pursued wisdom, but did their wisdom bring them to God? No. So they failed as well. But then lastly, he said, there are those who trust. And that comes from both. It comes from Jewish people. It comes from Greek people. Non-Jewish people. It says all that God has called to those people, they latch on to the wisdom of the Gospel and they see clearly the wisdom of the Gospel. And they trust in that and begin to model their life over just that. We see this played out very well in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, um, we find the Apostle Paul goes to a few different places. He goes to Berea. Um, he had been to Thessalonica. He goes to, to uh, Athens. And he meets with different groups of people. kind of does this in reverse order is what we just learned it in. But the first group of people that it acknowledges is the Bereans. In chapter 17, verses 11 and 12 of the book of Acts, it says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word of God with eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if the things were so. Many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so, that's the group that trusted the Gospel. You meet another group in Acts chapter 17 that is not the group that trusted the Gospel. And this group was your Jewish people that were tripping all over the Gospel. In verse 13 it says, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So Paul had been in Thessalonica. The Jews over the, tripped over the Gospel there. They did not welcome it. They tried to get rid of him. They heard that he was at Berea. They followed him up to Berea to try to agitate the crowds and stir up, try to keep people from believing in Berea too. So here's the group of Jews that's tripping all over the Gospel. Then he goes to Athens. And in Athens, he runs into all the philosophers, and this is what happens. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there 
would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. Now when they heard of the resurrection, so the Apostle Paul took the opportunity, and what did he share with them? Not the wisdom of the world. He shared with them the wisdom of God, which is the cross. And it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. And so we see that in the same, the same thing happened there. What happened? Well, some people tripped over the Gospel. Some people teased it and mocked it. Others trusted. Those are the three responses that we find even today. Even today in our society, if you share the wisdom of the cross, you're going to have some people that, that trip over it. They just can't get uh, their mind around it. It doesn't. It eludes them. You're going to find other people that, that will mock and tease and, and scoff at the idea of the Gospel or this idea of faith. And then you have people that are going to trust. Now with that in mind, in the next part of this, there's steps that God puts them through to lead them into His wisdom. So all three of these steps deal with the wisdom of man. And in the first one, man's wisdom is, is called out. In other words, he's, he's calling it out and saying, let's, let's see what you've got, O wisdom of man. Let's take a look at man's wisdom and see if it's worth, worth the effort. Uh, it's kind of like a, a friend of mine. I remember when I was in elementary school, I had a, a friend that moved from North Dakota out to Washington State, moved across the street from me, and, and uh, he and I hung out quite a bit through our rest of sixth grade and on up through uh, junior high and high school. And he used a term that I'd never heard before. Back in his school and stuff in their grade school, they used to, they used to enjoy uh, fighting and stuff once in a while, I guess. And because uh, people would just, they would call one another out. We didn't experience that a lot. Not that there wasn't a fight here or there that broke out, but it just wasn't like a hobby of ours, I guess, at the school that I went to. But at the school he went to, he said people would call one another out. They'd say, a recess on the playground, you better be ready because I'm coming for you. I thought I was a little bit weird, but that's what they called it. I'm calling you out. I remember one time uh, after that, this one guy was sitting at the swimming pool and this one guy came up and he says, I'm calling you out. Come on out. We're going to go fight. Why? <laughs> I didn't... <laughs> didn't. Did I do something that bugged you? you? You haven't bothered me. I don't know why we're fighting, but at any rate, another story for another time, or not. This idea of calling out, that's what God is doing here. God is calling out the wisdom of man. Because notice what it says in verses 20 through 24. He says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And then it goes into, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And so he's just calling out man's wisdom. He's saying, what do, we, what do we gain from man's wisdom? Has it helped? If we look at it honestly, I think we've got to say it hasn't helped. Look at the day that we live in. We live in a day where the communication, we're unbridled in our abilities to communicate in different venues that we can communicate through. But let me ask you this. Do we understand one another better Today, because of it, mankind is supposed to be progressing, we're told, in our progress toward peace and life and happiness and safety and all these things. Have we progressed? Are we closer today to no war than we used to be because of our progress? The 20th century saw phenomenal progress in technologies, phenomenal progress in learning and in knowledge. We have re- we've really grew through a through hundred years time period there. Before that time period started, there was not even a thought, I don't think, of air travel. or There's no cars. There was no computers. There was no smartphones. 
But if we have progressed, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. More wars, more people killed in those battles. For all the arguing and the, and the politicizing of everything, are we, are we any better on crime? Are the divisions within society going away? I would say, if anything, especially in the last year, they've gotten worse. We're not coming together in this so-called progress more. It's not getting more peaceful. It's getting more aggressive, if anything. And that's what he's doing. He's calling out the scribes and the debaters and he's saying, he's saying, where's the progress? Show me your progress. You know, I read an article the other day. It was a political article. And I read an article the other day and it dealt with uh, the pro-life issue and it dealt with, the par- dealt with the parties in American politics with the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And it said this. It said, look, if, if we're gonna, if, if we're gonna argue for a party over these kinds of issues, where's the progress? They said in the last 50 years, the Republican Party has had the majority on the Supreme Court for 49 out of 50 of those years. And we still have Roe v. Wade. You realize when Roe v. Wade was codified, it was an 8 to 1 margin of Republicans to Democrat. So where's the progress? 49 out of 50 years of that, the Republicans at times have owned the presidency, the Senate, the House, at times even all three. When you own the presidency, the House, the Senate, and the court, but we make no ground, that doesn't sound like it's real effective, does it? You see, that's what God is doing here. He's saying, all right, get out your scribes, your philosophers, your politicians, your, all your wise people of this age. Let me see. Show me your progress. Tell me what your progress is. And really the crux of the matter is, have they got to know God through the wisdom of the world? And the answer is absolutely not. And so that's what God does. The first thing that he does is he calls out man's wisdom and says, where's the progress? You know, in all of our progress, we don't even know the difference between a boy and a girl today. Does that sound like wisdom to you? If this human wisdom is a good thing, then it should be impacting culture in great ways, and it just isn't. Then secondly, we also see not only is man's wisdom called out, man's wisdom is compared, because then he goes through and he does just that. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Uh, skip down a little bit farther. Look at verses 25 and 26. It says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Let's look at the wisdom of the world and let's look at the wisdom of God. It says the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. And the passage that we mentioned earlier back um, where he quotes out of uh, Isaiah chapter 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What he's looking back to is there was an event back in Israel's history where they were threatened by the Assyrian army. And Sennacherib, the, the king of Assyria, was threatening Israel. And Israel, in all their wisdom, said, let's go to Egypt for help. And so he makes this alliance with Egypt. That was not the good way to go. God says, I you just wanted him to trust him. But rather than trust God, they leaned on Egypt. And Sennacherib came down, or his people came down and said, you're going to lean on Egypt? It's like a sharp staff. You're going to get a hole in your hand trying to lean on Egypt. I'm coming after you. So then the king... Hezekiah, he tried to pay him off. 
He said he gave him all the gold that was in God's temple and all the gold that was in his palace. And, and he's trying to buy them off and they're not having it. And he says, we're going to haul you off into captivity. Finally, they call Isaiah and they, they, they rent their clothes and they fall on their knees before God and they beg God for help. And finally, they trust God and God comes to their rescue. And God wipes out 185,000 men of Sennacherib's army without Israel even lifting a hand. And God said, you just needed to trust me. At the end of that, in Jeremiah or Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, God says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. God's just saying, you know what? You got in a tough time and instead of relying on me, you relied on human wisdom. And because of that, it will end in your shame. Well, that's the same thing the Bible tells us. The Corinthians were exercising human wisdom and it was bringing them to shame. They needed to repent of leaning on their own wisdom and trust in the wisdom of God, believe in the cross, model the wisdom in the cross of self-sacrifice and servitude toward one another, rather than standing up by their own bootstraps and looking out for number one. That's the path that they needed to take. Their clinging to human wisdom was bringing out their shame. And then lastly, man's wisdom is conquered. As it says, as he quoted from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 28 God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here's the outcome, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Now, how does this wisdom flesh itself out in our life? Righteousness. It talks about the righteousness that we receive at the moment we put our faith in Christ, that justification. Sanctification, which is God's ongoing work of sanctifying us, setting us apart as holy to Himself. And our redemption, which usually speaks of the redemption of our bodies when we're glorified in God's presence. So in other words, it brings us right back to that salvation that we talked about a couple times recently, about how salvation is a process. I was saved from the penalty of my sins. I'm being saved from the power of sin in my life. And I'm looking forward to being saved from the very presence of sin in my life. That's what the wisdom of God accomplishes. What does the wisdom of the world accomplish? More division. More death. But we just do it in bigger, faster ways. It does never provide what it, what it claims to provide. Stalin promised this utopia in communism. Slaughtered 60 million of his own people to accomplish it. Have they achieved it yet? No. You know, when we look at the wisdom of God, we see it in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now that accomplishes something. I'll end with this. The scribes, the, the philosophers of the Roman Empire, where's Rome? Where's that empire? It's gone the way of the world. But through the wisdom of the Gospel, through the wisdom of the Christ, 2,000 years later, it's not swept away like the Roman Empire is. It's in every corner of the world growing as people continue to share that gospel.